You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. As it is, we're not sure month to month if this is going to keep going. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics we don't have time to cover in our longer episodes, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. As a member, you could get a new episode from us as often as once a week. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. We know times are tough for everyone, and we appreciate your support. It's like I'm fine with skulls, just not rotting flesh heads. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the Severed Head Edition. I have been waiting to say this for so long. She's been waiting so long to say this, and she has been texting me all summer off and on about severed heads. And you would think this would be like a warning sign in any other friendship that maybe, maybe your friend is going through something. But in our friendship, what it means is Jenny has found a rich vein of fun, creepy stuff she wants to mine. And also, we all know she joined this cult. I'm in the cult of Dionysus. She's the cult of the severed head. So, when we talk about the cult of the severed head, what are we talking about exactly? This is the question that Jen has continued to ask me whenever I see a severed head in anything we're studying. I get real excited and I start flapping and shrieking about the cult of the severed head and Jen thought it was something I made up. I really did and I was like, is this a real thing? Like, what are you talking about? And she was finally like, listen, just do an episode on it because I don't want to hear about it. Very true. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, well... I have got that episode in my back pocket. (laughs) But here's the thing. She's going to do this episode and it's going to still be like me and Dionysus. She'll find a way to bring it up every episode, just like I do. I really will because severed heads are everywhere. Everyone was in a cult of the severed head. Get excited. So there are lots of cultures that practice head hunting. In fact, it seems to have been practiced broadly throughout the ancient world and in some cases even in the modern world. However, when I first encountered the cult of the severed head, it was in the context of my research about the ancient Celts. See, what archaeologists have discovered generally, and I'm speaking very broadly here, is that the ancient Celts of the Iron Age, which is roughly the 600s BC, and that date is kind of fuzzy, to 43 AD, and again, that date is also kind of fuzzy, had a real preoccupation with severed heads. 
No, Kukulin, say it ain't so. Oh, there's a lot of Kukulin in this episode. Just you wait. I mean, the reality is that chariot that he had as a child with the heads bouncing in it. <laughs> Anyways, the Iron Age Celts had a real preoccupation with severed heads. They took heads in battle. They displayed the heads of their enemies in prominent places in their homes and buildings. And they seemed to have had a set of religious beliefs around severed heads worshipping them as the seed of the soul and a source of wisdom, spiritual potency, and vitality. Maybe. So very broadly, the cult of the severed head refers to religious beliefs and rituals around decapitated heads. And the Celts are not the only culture that had this. In fact, it seems to be one of those things, like berserkers, that is far older and far more widespread than the culture we associate it with, by thousands of years. There were severed heads hung up for display and severed head iconography all over Gobekli Tepe, dating to over 10,000 years ago, going all the way back to the Mesolithic. If you listen to our episodes on the Nazca Lines, Cahokia and the Redhorn mythology, and Gobekli Tepe, you'll hear about severed heads in mythology and archaeology outside of Celtic contexts that seem to have had a ritual significance. Those are not the only places where we find this. It's just those are some of the places where we've covered it before. So it's very clear that cults of the severed head, defined as broadly as possible, uh, meaning just that there was some kind of religious significance or ritual around severed heads, occurred all over the world in ancient history and in some parts of modern history today, sometimes where you don't expect them. For instance, when we think about modern headhunting practices, did you know that American and Allied soldiers in World War II also took heads, especially in the Pacific Theater? I did know that. I was originally going to talk about all that stuff in this episode and just do a deep dive on global cult of the severed head, beliefs and iconography everywhere I found it. But it turns out, just going by the formal definition, which pertains to Celtic culture, would make this a very long episode. So this episode is just going to be about the Celtic cult of the severed head. And I am finally going to explain to Jen what I mean when I keep shrieking about that every time a severed head turns up in our research. And I think that first maybe we should try to define a little bit what we mean about Celtic. So the original episode that I did on Celtic culture was called the Gauls. Everything belongs to the brave. The Gauls were a group of Celtic people living in and around roughly France and Belgium during the Iron Age, roughly. And I'm just going to quote myself explaining this in that episode to give you the background. Quote, The word Celtic is an ancient term whose meaning has grown, changed, and deepened over the centuries and is particularly meaningful today to those with ancient Irish, Scottish, and pre-Roman British heritage. But that word Celtic was once used to refer to a culture that stretched from the UK and Ireland all the way across Europe, and it actually comes from an ancient Greek word, Keltoi. It was originally used by a Greek geographer, Hecateus of Molinus, in 517 BC to refer to a tribe of Gallic Celts living near what's now Marseille in France. Later, it was expanded to refer to an entire culture spread out over an enormous territory, stretching from what's now Ireland and the UK all the way across Western Europe, Eastern Europe, parts of Northern Europe, and into Asia Minor. The terms Celts and Gauls were sometimes used interchangeably in ancient writings, but they actually don't mean the same thing. Celtic, in ancient times, generally meant the people from this culture who lived throughout that entire territory, while the word Gallic meant Celtic people who lived in what's now France and Belgium, roughly. 
So if you were Gallic, you were Celtic, but if you were Celtic, you weren't necessarily Gallic. You could also be from what's now the UK, for example, and be Celtic, but not Gallic. Right. But then again, that's not really a word that the people of the UK during this time would have used to identify themselves. I think it's really important to remember that these were all people who had different tribal names. Like, think of Boudicca and the Iceni people. We've also talked about the Iverni. We've talked about Cartamandua. We've talked about Caratuckus. Caratuckus was the Catavalani. All of these people living in, in the UK did not consider themselves to be one unified person or one unified culture, even though outsiders saw them as being that and having the similar cultural signifiers. The terminology were very much put on them by ancient sources. Ancient sources outside of the culture, and we're doing that again now from thousands of years in the future. So the word Celtic is a questionable word, shall we say. And there's a lot of controversy about how it's used and what it means and how far back it goes and what what is included under the banner of Celtic. So we're just getting it out of the way by saying that, yes, it's kind of a it's a slippery word. And again, the Gauls and more broadly, the Celts, just as we said, weren't a unified political group. They were loosely connected groups of tribes spread out over a vast geographical territories, sometimes fighting each other and sometimes allied. They shared similar tradition and cultural signifiers, but they were not the same. Yeah, so we go into a lot of those signifiers in that episode from our back catalog, and you should listen to that if you want a fuller picture of who the Celts were or may have been. But today, we're here to talk about just one Celtic cultural signifier that I actually found in that episode and mentioned but didn't go into too deep of a dive on, the cult of the severed head. When we talk about the time period that the cult of the severed head would have existed in, in in this context at least, we're generally talking about a Celtic culture beginning around the 600s BC, the Hallstatt culture, generally wealthy, well-connected to the wider Mediterranean world, and not particularly warlike people, living well off mining and trade with the Mediterranean. Merging into the La Ten culture from the 450s BC up until Julius Caesar for the Gauls, or Claudius for the UK, uh, dates in other places are kind of fuzzy, it was hard for me to determine that, but it's the La Ten culture that's the warlike one, and probably the historical time period and culture that inspired a lot of the Celtic heroes and legends that we know of today. The Gauls were subject to genocide by Julius fucking Caesar in 58 to 50 BC. And the Celts in the UK suffered genocide uh, starting in 43 AD. Genocide can separate a people from their ancient practices and traditions. It can create a sort of cultural amnesia. And so for this and other reasons, including heavy later Christianization, we don't know a lot about the original Celtic beliefs and religion. What we do know, we've had to discern through ancient non-Celtic sources, archaeology, and much later folklore, most of it heavily Christianized and coming to us from a thousand years later than the original time period, and also most of it heavily edited by what Christian sources wanted to uh, continue the legacy of. But one of the things we do know, something that shows up in all three sources, something that can't be missed or ignored is that the Celts had a real thing for severed heads. The cult part of the cult of the severed head was that worship of severed heads was part of their religion. So not all researchers agree that the cult of the severed head was a thing. It's pretty clear that the Celts had a head-hunting practice of some kind. They did take heads. That's in the archaeology. That's in, that's in all three sources, basically. But the hard evidence in the ground doesn't tell us why they did that or what it meant. 
We don't really know if those severed heads had some kind of spiritual or religious meaning or what that was. But in this episode, we're going to look at those three branches of evidence, the ancient sources that are outside of the culture, the archaeology, and the much later folklore. All of it is flawed. All of it has reasons that you shouldn't trust it. But it is what we have, and it offers us an imperfect lens with which to peer into the past. That's right. We're going to triangulate the cult of the severed head. We invite you to draw your own conclusions. So the ancient Greeks and Romans encountered, fought with, traded with, and got to know the Iron Age Celtic peoples from around 2000 to 2500 years ago. They wrote a lot and with a certain amount of appalled fascination about the Celts' preoccupation with severed heads. This cracks me up. I just think back to Phlegon of Trailies, and he had so many stories where there were severed heads that came back and talked, and it's like, you can see them really deciding to, like, sensationalize this other culture, but they also have the same thing in their own culture. They just don't call it that or think of it the same way. And they weren't taking heads for worship. Actually, this shows up in um in Orpheus's story, right, where his severed head pronounces prophecies. Like, this happened in ancient Rome, too. We're focusing on the Celtic stuff, but this happened all over the place. And I would argue that there was a lot of cultural exchange, one of Jen's favorite topics. Yeah. The Celts and the Romans were talking to each other. Even in the Hellstat culture, they were trading with each other. Their traditions got passed back and forth. I mean, again, Orpheus is a great example. Like, he came back from the underworld, starts the Orphic tradition, which we're not going to get too far into, and his severed head continues sprouting prophecy after it's been torn from his body. That's such a cult of the severed head thing. And that appears in Phlegon of Trailies, where I think there's two instances of a severed head continuing to talk and pronounce prophecies after it's been severed from its body that we talk about in our episode with Liv about ghost stories from ancient Greece and Rome. Yeah, and the reason I keep going back to Orpheus is because like the Orphic tradition and the Orphic cult makes its appearance a lot later and you can see a lot of influence in those beliefs in Christianity and I would maybe put my tinfoil hat on and say trade with Celtic peoples. Yeah, I don't I don't think you're wrong about that, Jen. There's got to have been cultural exchange there. Like these people were talking to each other. Their cults were talking to each other. They were plagiarizing each other's cult practices. And then what happened was the Christians are writing it down, trying to make it make sense, making it even weirder. It's just wild. Or, you know, the Romans before that were writing it down sometimes, and it still didn't make sense because a lot of the time the people writing it down in ancient Rome weren't part of the mystery cult. Anyway, we digress. Diodorus Siculus, writing between 60 and 30 BC, said of the Celts, went, oh yeah, you say it. Do you want me to say it? Yes, I love the way you say it. Quote, When their enemies fall, they cut off their heads and fasten them about the necks of their horses, and turning over to their attendants the arms of their opponents, all covered with blood, they carry them off as booty, singing a paean over them and striking up a song of victory. And these first fruits of battle, they fasten by nails upon their houses. The heads of their most distinguished enemies they embalm in cedar oil and carefully preserve in a chest, and these they exhibit to strangers. I love that part because it's just like, the severed head is now a conversation piece in their house. It just reminds me so much of like the um the worship of Erdogatus and the Combavis, who cut off his most prized possession and put it in a box to like later show to the king. It's a cedar-scented chest. <laughs> With a dong. <laughs> on a bed of scented herbs. 
If you go over to an ancient Iron Age Celt's home, you might be presented with several severed heads of their enemies, and they're going to tell you the entire story of how they killed this person in detail. I know. You're going to have to be like, can you please pass the whatever the alcohol is? Because I'm not that interested, and I don't want to look at this head. Instead, could you take me out and show me how you smelt the gold and all the other things to make these beautiful pieces of jewelry? Anyway, so Diodorus also mentions a time when the Celts took heads during the Battle of Alia which took place around 387 BC. And I included this, it's short, but I just think it's an interestingly telling detail. Quote, For the Celts spent the first day cutting off, according to the custom, the heads of the dead. This is after this battle happened. Strabo, writing from roughly 64 BC to 24 AD, said, quote, Again, in addition to their witlessness, because he's an asshole, there is also that custom, barbarous and exotic, which attends most of the northern tribes. I mean the fact that when they depart from the battle, they hang the heads of their enemies from the necks of their horses, and when they have brought them home, nail the spectacle to the entrances of their homes. At any rate, Posidonius says that he himself saw this spectacle in many places, and that, although at first he loathed it, afterwards, through his familiarity with it, he could bear it calmly. The heads of enemies of high repute, however, they used to embalm in cedar oil and exhibit to strangers and they would not deign to give them back even for a ransom of an equal weight of gold. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Neither Strabo or Diodorus were writing from first-hand knowledge. They were quoting from the work of Posidonius, a Greek author and scholar who lived from 135 to 51 BC. Posidonius did know the Celts, specifically the Gauls. He traveled among them and wrote extensively about their cultural practices that he witnessed, including that the Celts would sometimes fight each other to the death for the hero's portion of meat, or allow their throats to be slit just to amuse their friends. Quote, And other men in the theater, having received some silver or gold money, and some even for a number of earthen vessels full of wine, having taken pledges that the gifts promised shall really be given, and having distributed them among their nearest connections, laid themselves down on doors with their faces upwards, and then allowed some bystander to cut their throats with the sword. That's a weird scene. It's a weird scene. It's hard to interpret it. This is a weird quote that I found in some place where they had assembled a bunch of quotes of Posidonius. Getting your throat slit for fun and profit appears to be... But you die unless it was a very narrow slit. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it either, Jen. Like, I know that the Celts had a very different relationship with how they viewed death. We don't know exactly what their afterlife beliefs were. Well, according to ancient Romans who interacted with them and Greeks who interacted with them, theoretically what they believed in was reincarnation, which is why they didn't fear death in battle. But that's also kind of a belief that was sort of plastered on a bunch of quote-unquote barbarian peoples to explain their ferocity in battle when what actually could explain it is that they didn't want to be colonized and enslaved. It may be some kind of cultural erasure saying that these people all just believed in reincarnation, or it may have been true in some or all cases. We don't know. 
So anyway, Posidonius wrote extensively about his travels in Gaul, as well as in North Africa, Sicily, Hispania, Greece, Dalmatia, Liguria, and many other places. But all his original works are lost, leaving us with only places where he's quoted in other people's writings, such as Diodorus Siculus and Strabo, as we quoted just above. We do have another ancient source, the Roman historian Livy, writing from 59 BC to 17 AD, he was the main source for such uh, hits as the first invasion of Rome by a Celt named Brennus. Livy was most active during the reign of Augustus, and his massive history of Rome, for which he's famous, is loosely considered to be Augustan propaganda. Emphasizing Rome's military successes and heroism in order to shore up a vision of Rome that Augustus wanted to promote. So take whatever he says with a grain of salt. But for what it's worth, Livy describes Gauls taking heads during the Battle of Sentinum in 295 BC as follows. Quote, Some authors say that the entire legion was wiped out there, not a man being left to carry the tidings, and that though the consuls were not far from Clusium at the time, no report of the disaster reached them until Gaulish horsemen appeared with the heads of the slain hanging from their horses' chests and fixed on the points of their spears, while as they chanted war songs after their manner. Livy also describes how during the Battle of Silva Latana in 216 BC, during the Second Punic War, a Gallic tribe called the Boai ambushed a contingent of 25,000 Roman troops and absolutely slaughtered them. Only 10 Romans were left alive, and the Boai beheaded their general, coated his skull in gold, and used it as a ritual cup to pour sacred libations with in a Boai sacred temple. And that's according to Livy. I just, I have questions about like coating it in gold, but like it's still going to be rotting underneath. And would it be a good idea to pour libations from it? And I will say that I don't believe any skulls have been found that have been treated in this way, like transformed into cups and coated with gold in the historical record, at least in the Celtic world. I don't know about other places. It's questionable if this actually was a thing that happened, or maybe we just haven't found evidence for it. Anyway, Livy never witnessed these battles since he was born roughly 150 to 236 years after they took place. He's not an eyewitness, and he couldn't have interviewed any eyewitnesses unless they're extremely long-lived. However, we also have some accounts from Polybius. He was a Greek historian who lived from around 200 to 118 BC. He wrote the histories, which documented the rise of Rome as the dominant power in the Mediterranean, mostly covering the periods from 264 to 146 BC. Its scope was broad, covering goings-on, mainly military battles, in Syria, Egypt, Iberia, Italy, Greece, Macedonia, and Africa. He's actually the earliest Greco-Roman writer to mention Celtic headhunting. He mentions three instances that happened during the Second Punic War from 218 to 201 BC. This is the time of Hannibal's invasion of Italy, around 218 BC. Anyway, so he led a contingent of troops and war elephants over the Alps and into Italy, where he wreaked absolute fucking havoc for a good long while. So, Polybius was born in 200 BC, about 18 years after the events he wrote took place. So, he's not an eyewitness either. But at least he's separated from these events by decades and not hundreds of years. And he could have potentially interviewed eyewitnesses. In his first account, a Roman consul named Gaius is decapitated after the battle. Quote, In this action, Gaius the consul fell in the melee fighting with desperate courage, and his head was brought to the Celtic kings. In the second account, a group of Celts originally allied with the Romans defect to join Hannibal. 
Quote, the Celts let more than half the night pass, and just about the time of the morning watch, armed themselves and fell upon the Romans, who were quartered nearest to them, killed a considerable number, and wounded not a few, and finally, cutting off the heads of the slain, departed with them to join the Carthaginians. In the third instance, Polybius talks about a war the generals waged against a Galatian tribe, Celts from Anatolia, in 190 BC. He would have been 10 years old then. Polybius would have been. The king's name was Ortiago. Quote. <laughs> oh, you're going to do it now. Okay. I just felt like teasing you that time. <laughs> anyway, it chanced that among the prisoners made when the Romans, I think you're going to like this one, Jen. When the Romans won the victory at Olympus over the Gauls of Asia was Caiomara, wife of Ortiago. The centurion who had charge of her availed himself of his chance in soldierly fashion and violated her. Like, fuck this dude. Availed himself of his chance in a soldierly fashion? Like, that's what we're calling rape now? That That's okay. Soldiers are just allowed to do that. Fuck off. I think if I was a soldier, I'd be mortally offended by this description. If I was not a total shitbag, anyway. Anyhow, returning to this quote, he was a slave indeed, this is the soldier, both to lust and money, but eventually his love of money got the upper hand, and, on a large sum of gold being agreed to be paid for the woman, he led her off to put her to ransom. There being a river between the two camps, when the Gauls had crossed it, paid the man the money, and received the woman, she ordered one of them by a nod to strike the Roman as he was in the act of taking a polite and affectionate farewell of her. The man obeyed and cut off the centurion's head, which she picked up and drove off with, wrapped in the folds of her dress. Fuck yes. On reaching her husband, she threw the head at his feet, and when he expressed astonishment and said, Wife, to keep faith is a good thing, she replied, yes, but it is a better thing that there should be only one man alive who has lain with me. I love her. I love her. Only one man can be allowed to live at a time who has lain with her. Yeah, husband, you better you better watch if you displease her. She's taking your head and going on to the next. I definitely took this as a veiled threat. I mean, he, you know, he's kind of threatening her and being like, wife, you know, you didn't keep good faith with me because you were with this dude. And she's like, oh, no, babe. I kept good faith because only one man alive gets to lay with me at a time, and I killed this dude. Or had him killed, which is great. You best behave yourself. Yeah, you best not blame the victims, okay? Because that's kind of what the, the husband's doing, and she's like, because if you do, we're going to come for you and take your head. Damn straight. I appreciate how the Long Island just came out right there. We're going to take your head. Take your head, <laughs> kids. <laughs> I mean, the weird thing is, like, I I am definitely from Long Island, but I've got this weird middle, mid-Atlantic accent most of the time. And then, because I've been around my family a lot, when the Long Island comes out, it's like, oh, look out. <laughs> and then the British comes out. She talks about dogs as dogs. Dogs, my little friends, my little foxes. <laughs> Toilet roll. Toilet loo roll. Loo roll. Bog paper. <laughs> so... What can we learn from these accounts? Bear in mind that these are not from the Celts themselves, but from outsiders observing from the outside. They're from Romans and Greeks, and with the exception of Posidonius, who we only have secondhand through other people quoting him, from people who were writing about events decades or centuries earlier who did not witness these practices themselves. That's what we have. What are we learning about headhunting from these practices? We see headhunting done in the context of war. 
People take heads and affix them to their saddles, display them in their houses as a mark of status and dominance, treat them as keepsakes, and preserve them in cedar oil chests, haul them out at dinner parties as conversation pieces. Heads were treated as proof of honor, proof that a Celtic warrior band had defeated an enemy, proof of a battle won, and proof that a woman had gotten revenge on her rapist. Heads were embalmed in cedar oil, nailed to people's doors, and hung from saddles. There was sometimes ritual significance to skulls taken in battle. There's a reference to making sacred objects like drinking vessels used for ritual purposes. I've only seen that referred to in that one place. I think I've also seen that referred to in the context of Scythian culture, but that's outside of the purview of the Celtic headhunting. Headhunting was so important that apparently one group of Celtic warriors spent an entire day taking heads after a battle. Yeah, that's that one quote. I think it was one of the first ones I read where it just, I think it was, I think it's from Diodorus. So clearly it must have been a really important thing in their culture. So those are the sources we have from the ancient world about the cult of the severed head. Two guys who never met the Celts themselves, quoting someone else from a century earlier who did meet the Celts most likely. Another guy who probably also didn't witness these events firsthand and lived several hundred years after the fact. And another writing about things that took place just before he was born or maybe when he was 10 or 11. I'm 11! I'm 11! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is why some researchers doubt if the cult of the severed head was actually a real thing. And here's another nail in the coffin. You know whose witness we also don't have? Julius fucking Caesar's, that's who. Yep. Julius fucking Caesar, who committed genocide in Gaul and wrote all about it in detail. Julius fucking Caesar, who never missed a single opportunity to make the Celtic Gauls sound as terrifying and brutal as possible, so as to glorify himself even more when his army beat them. Julius fucking Caesar talks extensively about Celtic religious beliefs, but he never mentions the severed heads at all. Hmm. That is weird, right? It's from Julius fucking Caesar. I'm just not going to stop. He can get mad at me all he wants. That we get lurid details about human sacrifice with the wicker man, who wrote that it was customary for soldiers traveling off to war to make a human sacrifice first to secure their own safety from the gods who talked about the Druids and how they believed in reincarnation. Julius fucking Caesar tells us just about everything we know about the Druids and their religious beliefs, and he never missed a chance to malign the Gauls by, possibly, we don't even know for sure, either exaggerating their most unfamiliar and potentially violent practices or making them up out of whole cloth. So why didn't Julius fucking Caesar mention this practice of Celtic headhunting and head display? You would think it would play right into his his goals, right? It plays into the mythos he's trying to create. So why would he not lean very heavily into it? What's going on here? And apparently Celtic headhunting is so important to these people that they spend a whole day behind enemy lines cutting off the heads of their fallen enemies in battle. He would have seen this. If the severed head was to the Celts as the cross is to the Christians, it seems some people claim that. Why didn't he mention it? For this reason, some researchers believe that the cult of the severed head was not actually real. I think that's a reasonable conclusion to come to. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at with it. But hold on a minute. Jenny talked about triangulating. Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. 
Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters, with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard it's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. What does the archaeology tell us? Actually, it tells us a lot. There is lots of evidence in the ground of head-taking in ancient Celtic cultures. Since the time periods we're looking at here are roughly 2,000 to 2,700 years ago, the skulls that survive to this time period are literally fragmentary. One place to look is the Celtic Apida. Apida are large, fortified, Iron Age hilltop settlements, usually associated with the Latin cultures, especially during the 2nd and 1st centuries BC. In Apida, from southern France all the way up to northern Scotland, researchers have found skulls that were once displayed in places of pride in these settlements. Here is a whirlwind tour. In the Iron Age settlement of Bredon Hill in Gloucestershire, England, three crania and six mandibles were found among the debris of a collapsed gate, destroyed in a last-ditch battle with the Romans during the conquest of Britain, so that would have been between the 40s and the 50s AD, I believe. It's believed that these skulls, fragmentary skulls, may have once been displayed above the gate. The Iron Age fort at Stanwyck was believed to be a Brigantius stronghold, the fortress of either Cartamandua or her ex-husband, Venutius, it was inhabited from around 400 BC to 50 AD. In a waterlogged ditch next to one of the gates, researchers found the skull of a middle-aged man, alongside an astonishingly well-preserved sword and scabbard. The skull appeared to have had its skin and flesh at the time it went into the ditch, and large cut marks suggested major damage done by a bladed weapon. It's believed that both head and sword hung above the gate, at one point, like trophies. And it, that's an, a really interesting thing to point out, is a lot of these skulls appear to have been fleshed when they were displayed, so they weren't displaying skulls, they were displaying heads. I'm not saying always, but frequently. At an Iron Age hillfort in Denorbin in western Wales, cranial fragments were found in three houses and one of the guard chambers at the main gate, plus a piece of a mandible in a ditch next to the entrance. This is believed to be the remnant of a trophy head once displayed over the gate. At Glastonbury Lake Village, an Iron Age village on a crenog three miles northwest of Glastonbury, two pieces of crania and mandibles were found with holes suggesting they were once impaled for display on a stake or spear. At the Hillhead Iron Age Brock in Caithness, Scotland, the top part of a skull was found on the floor of the entrance passage, with piercings suggesting it was once hung, perhaps from the ceiling or wall. At Entremont in southern Gaul, around 180 to 90 BC, 15 male skulls were discovered, several of them with holes formed by the spikes they had once been displayed on. There were also niches in the pillars designed to hold skulls. There's a lot of niches and pillars and archways over doors in some of these apida that seem to have been designed to hold skulls, or heads specifically. Yeah, like these little recessed areas to like display with a little candle under it. 
really macabre and wild, and I'm here for it. Yeah, apparently that was just part of the decor. Apparently they lived my spooky season dreams. Like, I, Jenny, maybe this is where I come from. Spooky <laughs> like, season was all year long, Jen. <laughs> sometimes it is in my house. <laughs> so, at Rock Poteuse, north of Marseille, which was destroyed by the Romans in 124 BC, a lot of severed head stuff has been found. It's been hard for me to kind of poke through it, but I'm going to give you a roundup. Most of it dates from the 200s BC. However, some things, including some cross-legged headless statues, a few of which I believe are holding their heads in their laps, are possibly much older, dating from the 500s or 400s BC. There's a platform in an open area that may have been some kind of place for display of trophies, with a portal, doorframe, and portico filled with niches for stone human masks and real human skulls. Sometimes they just got lazy and put a stone human mask in there, but sometimes they were real human skulls or probably actually fleshed heads. A Janiform statue was also found with two heads facing in opposite directions. The entire settlement is believed to have been a religious center as it has no residential buildings, as far as I know. Intact skulls with large nails hammered through them were found in Tuapita and Catalonia in northeastern Spain, Koblenz, Germany, and throughout southern France. Many of these have been found with clear-cut wounds from bladed weapons, suggesting they suffered violent deaths. Many pillars, archways, and other architectural features have been found with skull niches, some either displaying stone head sculptures or real human heads. In the La Cloche Iron Age Oppidum, dating from the 200s to 100s BC, many skull fragments were found in and near the entrance to the hill fort, including two partial skulls, one with iron hooks used for suspension, and the other with this sort of strange iron clasp that grips the skull over the top and goes into the eye sockets. It is very metal. Many of the Apata skulls date from the 2nd and 1st centuries BC, during the warlike Latin culture, but there are some found as early as the 500s and 400s BC, going all the way back to the Hallstatt culture. Interestingly, it would seem that the ancient sources were correct, that the Celts used to nail heads to their walls for display. The nailing would have been done when the skull was freshly dead, incidentally, or the bones would shatter. Evidence shows that many of the heads on display were fleshed, meaning they were heads, not skulls, when on display. Ew. There are skulls that have been found with these giant nails, like just drilled through the forehead and going all the way through the skull, that it seems that they they did nail skulls to heads and they would have had to do this right after death or the skull would shatter. And probably while the skull was fleshed. So it was a head. So it was just a head rotting on the... It's so unsanitary. Like, listen, I'm here for the skulls, but not for the rotting flesh. I love that your main objection to this is that it's unsanitary. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I'm fine with skulls, just not rotting flesh heads. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I have to tell my enemies that I have achieved dominance. How else can I do that? Well, right. That's what what they're doing here. (laughs) Dominance. That's so British the way I say that word. (laughs) You definitely said it in a very British colonialist way. (laughs) I I guess that makes sense that you would, those would be the words that come out British. (laughs) It's so weird. Dominance. It's so weird how like being in a foreign country changes your accent and the words that are changed are not always the ones you think it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crying right now. <laughs> uh, apologies to our listeners. 
This will continue forever. Yeah, we've often said that Jen contains multitudes, including both oppressor and oppressed in her ancestry, and thus is very confused. <laughs> and my accent. <laughs> so. It's me. Is, is it me? No, it's still you. We're still talking about the dominance here. We're still talking about the dominance. The dominance. So. <laughs> I need those skulls would, above my threshold. <laughs> it would seem. <laughs> so. It would seem that the ancient sources were right about one thing. The Celts sure did love to display heads. Loved it. <laughs> That's right, Kakalan. I was wondering when you would show up. Well, I don't want to glorify it too much because, you know, some people have issues, but I mean, loved it. Just Jen. I don't have any issues at all. I'm speaking your love language, aren't I? Which is severed heads. Yes, you are. Warp spasm. <laughs> Warp spasm. Damn right. <laughs> so, <laughs> just to finish off this paragraph. We are totally sober while recording this. Kukulin is not. I'm just letting you know. Oh, I figured he'd been tapping the mead barrel. What good is a mead barrel if it's not drunk? Especially not in a keg stand. Oh, he's all philosophical again. <laughs> I know he gets that way when he's trashed. He gets stabby, and then he gets philosophical, and then he wants to see your tits. In that order. Dim titties. Colin, no objectification of titties. Apologies. <laughs> Anyhow, bits of skulls. Bits of skulls. I'm just not, it's not your episode. We're not going to let it be hijacked. Bits of skulls. Jaws that, the one person in this group who actually lived through a severed head culture. And I'm like, I'm not letting you hijack it and tell us about your culture. Aren't you interested in my first hand account of my culture? It's about me and what I want to tell you about your culture. Dominance. <laughs> <laughs> Bits of skulls, jaws, the tops and sides of skulls, and other fragments have been found with holes and perforations indicating they were displayed on stakes and spears, hung from nails and hooks, affixed with clamps to walls and ceilings, and displayed in niches above main gates and overlooking communal halls and living spaces. Cullen, how do you feel about the severed head aesthetic in your home? I mean, have you ever seen the severed heads of your enemies lit at night by candle and torchlight? It is... A wondrous religious experience to behold. Wow, I'm kind of into this. Yeah, I have so many thoughts about Kukulin as a hero and what he's like in the sack right now that I don't want to talk about, so I'm going to move along. <laughs> <laughs> Jen's getting beat red right now. <laughs> I feel like Kukulin and Blood Orgy are just similar. <laughs> I didn't expect it to take this turn for you, but okay, maybe I should leave the two of you alone. I feel like I'm probably descended of Kukulin, so we, that's not happening. Very distantly, though. I mean... <laughs> We don't have sex with our family members, Jenny. Like, I know you've been in the ancient world for a long time, but I should not have to explain to you that we don't fuck even our ancestors. There's your cousins, and then your cousin cousins, and then your, then your, your uncle, uncle daddy. daddy. <laughs> <laughs> your sister mommy. No, we don't do Anyhow. that. <laughs> Anyhow. The ancient sources also mentioned that the heads were preserved with cedar oil and kept in chests. Not my chest. Not in not in your titties. Not in dem titties. <laughs> not in your breasticles. <laughs> You've not drunk and we're so ridiculous today. I know. We should have drunk for this episode. It would have been wild. We should have, but we didn't. Mistakes were made. And archaeological evidence supports this assertion too. At the Iron Age hill fort of La Calière in southern France that was occupied from the 600s BC to the 50s BC uh, around Julius Caesar's invasion. 
2,700 skull fragments were recovered from an open area clearly once used to display trophies, including ceramic and metallic objects and weapons. Almost all of the skulls exhibited cut marks that suggested a violent death, as well as signs of removal of the brain and scraping of the tongue and muscles from the inside of the mouth. Of the 2,700 fragments, 11 were selected at random and analyzed. It was found that six of the 11 skull fragments held traces of, of diterpenoids. Not what you're thinking. We're all thinking that. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. That's where my brain went. My dyslexia was like, diterpenuses, what? <laughs> but diterpenoids are actually a substance found in conifer resin, suggesting that the skulls had been embalmed using this type of resin. They had indeed been embalmed. Yeah, but I thought the ancients just let them rot there. <laughs> like, I didn't realize. Though they also put them in cedar chests and embalmed them and brought them out at dinner parties. I know, but I thought these were just ones that were hung up and just rotting. <laughs> it's, it's hard to tell where they were at one point, but this is a display area. Yeah, I just assumed they were like Cucullin's ones in his very metal castle, just nailed up or put in a niche, just rotting, watching the face slough off. <laughs> well, maybe they put them in some kind of a resin so they didn't just slough off like that. I don't know. We should ask Cucullin. Hey, Cucullin. What was your method of preserving the heads that you hung up in your palaces or castles or Iron Age hill forts or wherever you lived or your cottage by the sea? First off, it was a castle and a hill fort, a hill fort castle, and I could see the sea. I like the sea. Second, resin. I wanted to watch a little bit of the face slough off, but mostly I wanted to look in the eye, which was gone at this point in time, of the men who I vanquished and say... I'm still here, bitches. So would you say that you were not big on preserving the head? I feel like it's very natural that the head will decay. Put in resin, but I was okay when it browdered away. I knew who was where. Sometimes I will play tricks on my children and move the heads around just to scare them. Well, that wasn't the question I asked, but thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> he said he used resin. He said it three times. Pine resin, according to according to this. He didn't say what kind of resin. He wasn't interested in the kind. It's Kukulin. And he's also a little bit trashed, so you don't know what you're going to get. Oh, you never know what you're going to get. Did Kukulin have kids that he didn't kill? He probably had a lot of illegitimate ones that the Christian sources don't want us to know about. Right. The only kid I can think of is that one son that he had who came to kill him and he wound up disemboweling him and then figuring out that he was his son just as he died. Well, that was his epic warrior son who he didn't know about. The reason Kukulla needs to drink around us is we continually excavate his trauma. We do. It's very unfair. And that's why Kukulla, when he's like, oh, they're recording this episode today. It's in my diary. I know they're going to call on me. I'm going to be trash. And I don't blame him. We're terrible people. So anyway, it might be the right time here to go back to what Strabo said, quoting Posidonius, who was in fact the eyewitness, quote, The heads of enemies of high repute, however, they used to embalm in cedar oil and exhibit to strangers, and they would not deign to give them back even for a ransom of an equal weight of gold. So these skulls may have been high-status individuals, 
their skull heads used as trophies. And it suggests that maybe there was some kind of ransom situation happening. Like maybe family members sometimes tried to buy the heads back from enemies and were generally not successful, according to this account. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, depending on your culture, particularly Roman and Greek, they would have wanted the heads back to be part of their burial. Even if you're, you know, one Celtic group of people versus another Celtic group of people, you don't want your dad's head hung up in his enemy's castle forever. You're going to try and ransom that back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem like there was anything you could pay to get that head back. You would have to just go to that castle, slaughter everyone in it, take their heads and also take back your dad's head. I mean, they were very metal, according to this interpretation. Yeah, which which would seem to indicate a real cult of the severed head retribution situation going on. The cycle of violence, kids. It's real. So anyway, in addition to the real skulls in the archaeological record, researchers have found images of severed heads carved into pillars and stones, large archways carved with niches for the display of heads, images of horsemen carrying severed heads. So that kind of corroborates this idea of horsemen tying severed heads to their horses. Seated statues with severed heads sitting in their laps and even coins showing men holding up severed heads all throughout the Iron Age Celtic world, dating again roughly from the 500s to the first contact with Rome. We also find bodies without heads often in a warlike context. There's one very specific site that illustrates this that we covered in our episode about the Gauls. This site is Ribemont sur Ancre. This site is Ribemont sur Ancre in northern France. And here's what we said about it in our last episode on the Gauls. Everything belongs to the brave. Quote. I'm just quoting myself here. In the 1960s, archaeologists in France discovered an incredible site in Ribemont sur Ancre in northern France. What they found was an enclosure about 40 meters wide, surrounded by a ditch and marked out with posts at each corner. Inside its boundaries were swords, scabbards, daggers, spears, shields, weapons of every type, and thousands of bones of humans and animals, dated from around 260 BC. The human bones probably belonged to between 500 and 1,000 individuals, all men between the ages of 15 and 40. They died violent deaths. Many of the bones had blade marks on them on knees, thighs, ribs, and vertebrae. One pelvis, as Mary Roberts notes in her book The Celts Search for a Civilization, had, quote, at least four stab wounds on the inner surface, which must have been caused by a penetrating injury from a spear or sharp sword passing through the belly before hitting the bone at the back. But the most noteworthy thing about the bones is that there are no skulls, not one. There is clear evidence of blade marks on the cervical vertebrae. The decapitation seems to have been done as the bodies were lying down, either face up or face down. This is in accord with the ancient writer's claims that the Gauls took heads as trophies after battle. So what this site was, essentially, was a huge war monument where the headless bodies of soldiers were stood up vertically on racks in rows, as if standing in an army. They stood wearing their own armor and weapons, and they stood that way for potentially hundreds of years based on the weathering of the bones before the site was broken up and the bones shattered and buried. So here's a little bit of evidence from Julius Caesar's time, sort of a counterbalance to those saying it's significant that Caesar never once mentioned headhunting. A coin dating specifically from Caesar's invasion of Gaul depicting a man holding a carnix in one hand and a severed head in the other. The name on the coin is Dumnorix. Now, this is a significant name. This is a guy that Caesar knew. 
In the commentaries, there's a whole drama between the druid Divisiacus, a statesman of the Aedui, who was a Gallic tribe that was allied to Julius Caesar, and Dumnorix, an Aedweed chieftain and Diviciacus's younger brother, who took one look at Caesar and went, nope, nope, a clock, nope, rocket into the sun. It's a whole feud between brothers that ended with Dumnorix leading a rebellion that gets squashed and subsequently being chased down and slaughtered by Caesar's men, all while shouting that he's a free man from a free state. And not being enslaved was probably one of his objectives in leading this rebellion. Absolutely. But before that happened, here he is on this coin, with a severed head as a kind of marker of leadership among his people. Remember, coins were a type of visual propaganda in their time, reinforcing a leader's influence and power. So even though Caesar didn't mention headhunting in the Celtic society that he genocided, clearly it had a very important role to play, and images of severed heads were a powerful indicator of warrior status to these people. It would seem that the archaeological evidence backs up the ancient sources. Throughout the Celtic world that we see, that we have, you know, archaeological evidence for, heads were being hacked off bodies, tied to horses, nailed to walls, hung up above main gates and overlooking mead halls, placed on stakes and spears, and hung on hooks and clasps from beams in the ceiling. Heads were taken in the hundreds after battles. But what does it mean, exactly? We don't get much about meaning from the ancient sources. We also don't get much about meaning from the archaeological record. We get that people took heads and displayed heads, but we don't know why. We do get some sense of that from ancient sources, but those sources are outside the culture and probably didn't understand it very well. But we do have some information in Celtic mythology, such as the Mabinogian, the Ulster Cycle, and other ancient epics. Celtic Iron Age religious beliefs have not come down to us very well. As we've said before, a lot has been lost to the centuries. Celts suffered genocide at the hands of the Romans in Gaul and in Britain, as well as other places. It's perhaps not a coincidence that some of the strongest centers of Celtic culture even today include Wales, Scotland, and Ireland, places the Romans either didn't conquer completely or never got to at all. But even their Celtic mythology comes down to us through a prism of 2,000 years and a Christian lens because it's the Christians who wrote things down, from roughly around the 700s to the 1400s very, very broadly. We can't tell how they changed the oral histories to suit their agenda, which they frequently did. Even so, let's take a quick look at some Celtic mythology and how severed heads play into that mythology. So, I have seen a lot of people claim that to the Celts, the head was the seed of the soul, a source of spiritual potency and wisdom, and owning a severed head was kind of like owning all the power its living owner once possessed. Hot. I know. <laughs> what is wrong with me? <laughs> but there's really no way we can actually know that these were the specific beliefs. We do get some things about the Celtic view of the soul from Julius Caesar, who is an extremely problematic source for a lot of reasons. But nowhere I've seen does he say that the Celts believed that the head was the seat of the soul or anything else about heads and Celts together that I've seen at all. It seems to me that most of the time, when people say things like this, they're getting it from Celtic mythology that comes to us from a thousand years after the fact and through a Christian lens. That doesn't mean it's not without its own truth, or doesn't contain any trace of real ancient beliefs, though, which is why I think it's worth it to look at it. Remember, triangulating to try to get to the truth. In roughly the 800s to 900s AD, 
Cormac's Glossary, an Irish glossary of over 1,400 Irish words, referred to the taking of heads as Maka's Nut Harvest. Maka, of course, is just another name for our goddess, the Morgan. It's pretty clear from the archaeology and accounts from the contemporary sources that head cults had to do with battle. But that's not how severed heads appear in a lot of Celtic mythology. There's a lot of non-battle-related head stuff, but there is some battle-related head stuff. One of the places where you find severed heads, just about everywhere, wall-to-wall severed heads, is the Ulster Cycle. This is a group of heroic legends written down in medieval Ireland, probably from oral histories, that date from potentially 2,000 years ago, or maybe older. Anyhow, the Cattle Raid of Cooley is one of many stories in this cycle, which deals with the adventures of Cucullin, our buddy. Cucullin! Yes? We're talking about you and your friends. I know. You'd best be kind to us. When you deserve it. I always deserve it. I choose to spend some of my afterlife hanging out with you, and I'm descended of gods. Right, I'm petting you on your spiky little head right now. (laughs) (laughs) And now I need to wash the blood halo off my hands a little bit, but I still love you, Kukulin. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, the Cattle Raid of Cooley is one of many stories in this cycle, and it deals with the adventures of Kukulin, my friend, Conkavor, and the heroes of... I think that the way that we figured out how we say it is Avon Vaca. Apologies to anybody who speaks ancient Irish, and their rivalry with Maeve and Aleel of Connaught. Concavor, Cucullin's uncle dad, was said to have an entire building, the Ruddy Branch, dedicating to holding all of his severed heads. Yeah, he did. Were they all in little niches with candles? Yes, and sometimes, like, if they'd been very, very naughty, he would turn them to face the wall. <laughs> oh, really? If they were speaking out of turn? <laughs> sometimes they did. Listen, when you decapitate so many enemies, sometimes ghosts do follow you around and have thoughts about how you're living your life, so you just turn their head away and tell them you're not interested. (laughs) (laughs) So here's a roundup of some noted places in Cucullin's story, but also in other places where severed heads make an appearance. (laughs) In my favorite of Cucullin's battle, his first battle, he comes back with severed heads, bouncing in his chariot. He's in a full-on warp spasm. He's like 11 years old. The only thing that will stop him is boobs. I'm 11! I'm 11! Damn titties! Damn titties! <laughs> it is. It's a very odd scene. The women rush out to meet him, bare-breasted, and all of a sudden, Kukulin's like, I'm 11! <laughs> it was that skanky druid's idea. Kukulin, what was that guy's name? Not allowed to talk about him anymore. My wife is not a fan. Are we talking Emer? Yeah, we're talking this week, so I can't talk about him. Don't want to let his name dirty your mouth. Next week when I'm hanging out with Ferdiad, it'll be different. Right, you can put anything in your mouth with Ferdiad. <laughs> Emer in the afterlife is a lot cooler. She understands polyamory, but on her week, we don't mention that dude. Yeah, I mean, he is kind of skanky. I don't blame Emer here. But I'm glad in their afterlife they're now polyamorous and they get to enjoy their life. Cucullin was absolutely polyamorous before the afterlife. But I'm glad that Emer may also be polyamorous and is allowing, you know, not being forced into a role that was Christianized upon her. I wouldn't say that Cucullin was ethically polyamorous in his life, but... (laughs) Anyhow, so this one time, while following Maeve's army, Cucullin meets four guys from said army who are arguing about which of them would first behead him, Cucullin. Cucullin beheads all of them. Obviously. Impales all of their heads on stakes. I like to impale on stakes sometimes. And sends, quote, 
the horses of that band back by the same road to meet the men of Ireland with their reins flying loose and the headless trunks red with gore and the bodies of the warriors dripping blood down onto the framework of the chariots. I'm so metal, aren't I, Jenny? You love it. I do, I love it! (laughs) (laughs) Then the host saw the horses of the band who had gone in advance of them and the headless bodies and the corpses of the warriors dripping blood down on the frameworks of the chariots all were thrown into a panic. Yeah, I was a pretty badass on that battlefield. I see a lot of berserker energy happening here. Your only comment about berserkers in our berserk episode was that you could kick their asses. I could kick their asses. Still would kick their asses. Bring it on. I got chariots that need heads. I got horses that want to have headless riders. God. (laughs) (laughs) That's super fun. (laughs) And Jenny is full on aroused. (laughs) Not in public, thank you. Um, (laughs) I'm just blushing a little bit. (laughs) In another story, Cacullin meets a two-headed warrior named Garb. In single combat, he beheads him and impales the double heads on a single stake, as you do. Just one stake for the double heads. So this one time, when Maeve invades Ulster, Cucullin and his friend Swaltom. Swaltom? I'm probably mispronouncing that, I'm sorry. You are. (laughs) No other elaboration. (laughs) No. (laughs) Are the first to see her coming. Cucullin tries to... Such an asshole. I'm crying. I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> Cucullin tries to tries to hold off the army while Swaltom. But this is a funny story, so I I think it's okay to laugh at it. While Swaltom runs back to warn Conkavor and the heroes of Ulster, he bursts into the hall screaming about murder and plunder. Except this goes really, really badly. So due to his panic, he does not follow the proper protocol in addressing the king, makes some pretty serious etiquette mistakes that lead to everyone ignoring him, and then, when leaving, he trips and falls on his own shield, decapitating himself on the sharpened rim. His severed head is brought back into the hall on its shield, still screaming about plunder and murder, and this time, everyone listens. In the destruction of Da Durgda's hostel, the King Connor is attacked. In the midst of battle, he asks his champion to go and get him some water. His champion returns just in time to see two men cut off Connor's head. Mad with rage and grief, the champion kills the attackers, all while Connor's severed head keeps up some small talk, drinks the water, and composes a poem dedicated to his illustrious champion and his amazing fighting skills. I mean, even in death, we're still making those severed heads work. I mean, what I love about it is that occasionally the the cult of the severed head plays it for laughs. Sometimes severed heads had a lot to say and a lot to do, and we should just appreciate that. There are lots of other tales like this where people's heads are decapitated and stuck on stakes or put in niches and where they continue to talk, sing, compose poetry, speak in riddles, prophesy, and generally just do not shut up, okay? In fact, in one of the stories in the Fianna cycle, which is another Irish heroic epic cycle, I would say this is like the competition to the Ulster cycle. There is no competition. There is one epic cycle. It's mine. All the others are lesser epics. I kind of wondered what would happen if you and Finn McCool had an epic fight. I would kick his ass and take his head. Totally expected you to say that. (laughs) If I had him on the line, he'd probably say the same thing. And he'd be wrong and speaking as a head in one of my niches. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Sometimes I'd have to turn it away because I bet he'd be opinionated. Anyway... 
So Finn McCool has the most badass name I've ever encountered. He uh, He's kind of the Cuchulain of the Fianna cycle, and he had two mommies. Anyway, his court <laughs> jester. So anyway, he had this court jester named Lamna, who was murdered and beheaded. The murderer took his head inside and put it by the fire, I guess, but the head just rambled and spoke in riddles and kept talking, wouldn't shut up to such an annoying degree that the murderer finally kicked it out of his house for being annoying, which is how Finn McCool knew who the murderer was. That is an actual thing you have to be concerned about when you take a head. Like, you're taking that of your vanquished enemy, but sometimes that enemy is a bit wordy. That's why you have to turn it towards the wall, put it upside down, anything to get it to stop talking when it just has to uh, be a smartass from the afterlife. Considering who to put in the chest, the embalmed cedar oil chest, versus who to put in the niche, so the ones that were real talkative go in the chest. <laughs> I mean, or else you could gag them, put a, put a rock in their in their mouth, that usually helps. Deviant burials, yes. Or a brick. In their niches, yes. I mean, that is frequently how we keep down a vampire. And a talkative severed head. Right. Didn't even consider that use case, but perhaps that's another one. So let's transition here to Welsh mythology, because it turns out that Welsh mythology also has some stuff to add here. And the story that I want to focus on is Bran the Blessed. So this story is part of Welsh mythology, as Jenny said. It is uh, perhaps its most expansive version occurs in the Mabinogian, a collection of Welsh oral histories compiled in the 12th and 13th centuries and based on, again, much older oral histories. As the story goes, Bran was both a king and a giant, high king of the Islands of the Mighty, which was another name for the island of Britain. His stronghold was in Wales. According to the story, the Irish king, Mytholoc, asks for Bran's sister's hand in marriage, and her name is Branwen. And Bran agrees, but his half-brother, Ephnesian, loses his shit because his permission wasn't asked first, and he mutilates King Mathlock's horses. In compensation, Bran gives Mathlock a magic cauldron that can bring the dead to life. And he seems, you know, satisfied with this compensation, and he and Branwen depart for Ireland. However, once back in his own kingdom, Mathaluk clearly is not over how his horses were treated. I wouldn't be either. I agree. But however, the way Mathaluk responds to this is not cool. He mistreats his wife, banishes her to the kitchens, beats her every day, and generally is a dick. Desperate, Branwen befriends a starling and sends it across the sea to get her brother Bran, who wades across the ocean, seeing as he's a giant and everything, with a rescue armada. Mathaluk plays it sneaky. He throws a welcome feast and even builds a house big enough to host the giant Bran, but he hides his army in that house. A great violent feast ensues in which people get their skulls crushed and burned alive, corpses are thrown by the dozen into the magic cauldron to create a zombie army, and if Nisium, the horse mutilator, dies destroying the cauldron, glad that dude is dead. Branwyn dies of a broken heart, and only seven of Bran's closest friends survives. Bran himself is mortally wounded and begs his friends to cut off his head and send it back to Wales. So his friends comply. They cut off Bran's head and take it back to his stronghold. But Bran's head does not die. Instead, it continues to speak and impart wisdom and tell funny jokes and generally just keep them laughing. The seven companions enter a strange fugue state and begin a series of feasts that last for roughly 80 years. I mean, the rest of their life. <laughs> The assembly of the wondrous head, for that's what the seven companions are called, 
have no memory of grief or sorrow. They want for nothing, no food or shelter. They do not age. They do not tire of each other's company. They do not perceive the passage of time. And wherever they travel, they are feted and celebrated and accompanied by Bran's uncorrupted, unrotting, really fun and entertaining head. This sounds like a troop of like hobbits or dwarfs coming to your town, forcing that you feast them and celebrate them forever. I mean, kind of, but it doesn't really have that connotation, you know, like it's at least the way that I read it, it seemed like they kind of entered into this magical realm where they never needed anything or suffered in any way. And the head just they never lost their king, their king kept on staying with them and talking to them and feting them and everything was perfect and nothing was ever sad. And I just see a lot of grief denial in this story. Oh, totally. I'm not I mean, I took it to a lighter place. But obviously, yes, that is probably the more appropriate reading. Anyway, all good times must come to an end. After about 80 years of traveling around to various islands and castles in a supernatural otherland realm, one of the members of the assembly opens a door that he shouldn't, a door that leads back to the real world. Cornwall, to be specific. Suddenly they remember that Bran is actually dead. All their sorrow comes crashing back in on them. The head of Bran, once the life of the party, falls silent. The seven take the head of their king to the White Hill, Believed to be the hill where the Tower of London was later built, there they bury it facing to the east, to France, to head off any invasion. Which is interesting because the trouble in this story comes from the west, from Ireland, and I wonder if the later half is younger than the beginning. But anyway, I digress. I think you're right. I think it's definitely the later half is younger than the beginning. Right, and it has some combination of, like, English lore in there now because it's it's referencing, like, you know, the conflicts between England and France, which are much later. Like, there's a lot to unpack here, which I have not done a lot of research on. Why would he be buried at the Tower of London? That's a seat of, you know, there's a lot in there that just shows kind of a mashup of things. Right, why would they bury him in the Tower of London when where he specifically asked to be taken back was his stronghold in Wales? Exactly. So next, we're going to tell you about the beheading game. The beheading game is a fun game that shows up in Irish mythology, as well as later Arthurian and other medieval legends. It's a really fun game that we probably shouldn't try at home. Here's how to play. (laughs) Here's how to do it, kids. (laughs) In the classic version of the game, a mysterious stranger arrives at a place where heroes are gathered and issues a challenge. Whoever is the bravest may strike off his head. But... He may then inflict the exact same wound on that brave hero. It's a great game, right? Who wouldn't sign up for this? You behead the dude and then nobody can come back and behead you because they're dead. Right? Right? Well, no. No. In fact, that's not how it works. (laughs) Oh. The catch is that it turns out that the stranger is supernatural. No, a stranger shows up and wants something from you is actually supernatural. I haven't seen this through all of mythology. I shouldn't treat them nicely. Right, it's not Odin in disguise, is it? In the same disguise every time. It's not Zeus in disguise. I shouldn't cook my children for him. (laughs) Anyway, the stranger is supernatural. He's a god or a spirit or, I don't know, one of the Tuat de Danan or something. This is revealed when somebody beheads him and then he calmly walks over picks up his head, puts it back on his body or not, and announces that the man who gave him the blow must now show up at another point in time to receive the same blow he doled out. That's when generally the hero who gave the blow realizes he is in deep shit. 
It's a terrifying moment where the hero realizes he's just signed his own death warrant in front of all his friends and he must take that blow because honor is at stake. Honor is at stake. Our friend Kukulin is no stranger to the beheading game, right Kukulin? I am not. It's not your first go-round, is it? I know how this rodeo goes. So anyway, the hero in question eventually kneels and submits to his fate, sometimes after a period of as much as a year during which he has crippling anxiety the whole time, whereupon he is rewarded with only a minor flesh wound. It's a symbolic death and rebirth that's supposed to be a kind of coming of age. Maybe there's a connection to sacrificial kings here, potentially. The oldest version of the beheading game appears in the Ulster Cycle, and it features our good friend Cullen. And you know we're going to tell that story. Gotta just relive my trauma for your enjoyment. We love you, Cullen. Do you, though? Oh, yeah. The story is called Brie Crew's Feast, and it's very old dating from probably the 700s AD, making it possibly one of the oldest Cucullin stories. In this story, Brie a known trickster and troublemaker, invites all the Ulster heroes to his new hall for a feast. I can't see how this could possibly go wrong. While there, he sets Cucullin and two other noted heroes competing against each other to see who is the most heroic. Many warrior feats were performed, things got completely out of hand, and Cucullin very obviously won, but the other two people competing refused to accept that he was the best hero. Honor was at stake. Eventually, the competition got so intense that Cucullin and his two frenemies had to travel to Canock to be judged by Aleel and Maeve, and this couldn't possibly go wrong, there's no beef between these people and then on to Munster to be judged again by the trickster king, Kuroi, who just wanted to stir shit up. They just contacted all of the local shit stirrers to judge this contest. They're like, have we got a game for you? <laughs> so anyway, the three competitors face challenge after challenge, and Kukulin keeps winning, much to everyone else's chagrin, because Kukulin is a show-off. Kukulin is a shameless show-off and flirt. Shameless, shameless flirt, shameless hussy, shameless show-off. The other two heroes refuse, refuse to accept his domination, or should I say, domination. Dominance. <laughs> Finally, everyone goes home in a bad mood to Evan Vaca, their home turf, where they're met by a giant. He's been waiting for them. The giant challenges the three heroes. Let the bravest cut off his head, the giant's head, and receive the same blow in return on the following night. One by one, the first two heroes come to strike off the giant's head. He picks it up and leaves after each time. But when the time comes for the hero to receive their blow in return, they each stand the giant up. They are weenies. Yeah, they are. Don't stand a giant up. If you're going to take a blow and receive one in return, you show up. The only one who returns to receive his blow is Kukulin. Yeah, I did. The giant spares him, revealing that he is in fact the trickster king, Kuroi, and declares Kukulin undisputed champion because of his bravery. I have dominance. Dominance. <laughs> That's Jenny saying it, not me. She's now making fun of me. Quote. <laughs> quote. <laughs> this is not a Although quote. Although there is no quote. <laughs> There's no quote here. There are lots of examples of the beheading game in Irish literature. Usually the game involves three heroes in competition with each other, but it also appears in the Arthurian cycle, in which there's 
usually only one hero. Usually, but not always, it's the hero Gawain. He's the favorite target of the beheading game Trolls. The most famous iteration is Gawain and the Green Knight, which dates from around the 1300s the author is unknown. In this story, a mysterious Green Knight crashes King Arthur's Christmas Day get-together. He is entirely green, his horse is entirely green, and he wears no armor. He might be wearing clothes, but he might just be green. Possibly not wearing underwear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not talking to him then. It's my Giza. Anyway, he comes bearing an axe in one hand and a bow of holly in the other, like a god of old, uh, the holly king. After casually insulting everyone present and declaring them too weak to fight him. Y'all are wussies. Yeah, you are. You're not even fighting naked with just a bow of holly and an axe. That's right. No underwear whatsoever, like a berserker. After insulting everyone, as we just did, the Green Knight says he's here for a friendly Christmas game. That's right. He wants to play everyone's favorite party game, the beheading game. It's everyone's favorite party game! Woohoo! Some people do, like, Secret Santa, or they do, like, Bad Santa, Yankee Swap. Like, he's like, oh no, I'm gonna swap something with you. Your head from your body. (laughs) (laughs) There was a movie about the Green Knight that came out a couple years ago. Do you remember this? I do. I haven't seen it, but I remember it. This is basically the plot line, so, you know, spoilers. I mean, it's very old, so... (laughs) It's not that old. It's, like, a couple years old. It's It's good. No, the story of Gawain and the Green Knight is very old. I'm not- oh, yeah, it absolutely is. So the Green Knight challenges anyone there to give him a blow with his own axe, and the knight will deliver a like blow in a year and a day. Interestingly, he doesn't specify that it has to be beheading. Whoever takes this deal will get to keep the axe. Nobody dares take up the challenge, and for a minute it seems King Arthur will have to do it himself just to prove that they're not all weenies in this house, thank you very much. But then Sir Gawain, the youngest, Arthur's nephew, and possibly the guy with the most to prove, stands up and volunteers instead. The Green Knight hands Gawain the axe, whereupon he promptly beheads him. And I mean, you'd think he could just give him a little tap or something, but no, no, this is the beheading game. The Green Knight bends down, picks up his own severed head, gets back on his horse, and the head speaks, giving Gawain directions to meet again at a place called the Green Chapel in a year and a day. Gawain eventually sets out to keep his appointment, having a number of adventures along the way. When he's almost to the Green Chapel, he gets waylaid at a castle where a lord and lady try to tempt him into a threesome. Woohoo, Gawain, go for it. There's some dude-on-dude manly knight kissing. Gawain must resist because the Christianity of it all. The lady secretly gifts him with a silk girdle that will protect him from all harm. He's supposed to give this to the Lord because of a promise he made, but he sneakily keeps it and makes out with the Lord instead. Gawain. God, what a filthy hussy. I know. Gawain is supposed to be like the all innocent and pure one, but mm-mm. Actually, he's, he's very conflicted about this bisexual making out that goes on at this castle. Because Christianity. (laughs) Because Christianity is just not supposed to, but he does it. The next day, Gawain goes to the Green Chapel, which just happens to be around the corner. He finds the Green Knight outside sharpening his axe. Gawain kneels to receive his blow, but flinches when the axe comes down, resulting in a brutal ribbing from the Green Knight. The second time, he doesn't flinch, but the Green Knight pulls back at just the last second, claiming that he was just testing Gawain's nerve. By now, Gawain is pissed. 
He demands the Green Knight just get it over with already, God. And so he does, swinging his axe and nicking Gawain's neck. It's then revealed that the Green Knight is actually that lord that Gawain had all those steamy makeout sessions with. And furthermore, this is all a trick orchestrated by Morgan Le Fay, our girl. He only nicked Gawain's neck because he snuck out without mentioning that girdle. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it at all. Clearly, the brave, knightly thing to do would have been to give the lord the girdle and go to his beheading without its protection. So Gawain had failed the manly coming-of-age test of bravery that could Cullen clearly pass back in Ireland. Could you kick Gawain's ass? Obviously. He didn't do the honorable thing. Didn't give in to the properness of enjoying that threesome. Like, come on, Gawain. Grow up. Grow up, Gawain. Enjoy your threesomes, and don't show up to your beheading with a girdle that protects you. It's not proper. Don't show up with a magical girdle. Come on, show up and take your beheading. Anyway, so clearly the brave, knightly thing to do would have been to give the lord the girdle and go to his beheading without its protection, as Gucullin said. Gawain has failed the manly coming-of-age test of bravery. He also gave in to lust and sin by unicorning for this lordly couple. Gawain vows to wear the sash forever because he's ashamed. Shame! 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 But also it protects him. Like, I mean, I would wear it forever if it's going to protect me from any harm. Oh, the shame of being safe from harm! (laughs) Oh, the shame of never being injured in battle again in in a place with no antibiotics. I know. But the knights of the round table decide it wasn't Gawain's fault. The lord and lady were very, very sexy after all, throwing themselves at him. And they all decide from now on to wear matching green sashes to remind themselves to stay sexy and don't get beheaded. (laughs) I may have embellished this a little bit, but... (laughs) You might have and stole another podcast uh, catchphrase and revamped it for us. (laughs) (laughs) There are approximately seven iterations of the beheading game in the Arthurian cycle, all of which are at least loosely based on that 700s AD story from Cuchulain cycle. The story's themes of testing bravery and the loyalty of heroes fit in perfectly with later chivalric themes. Sometimes, as when Lancelot plays the game, the hero is presented as a kind of Christ figure. And you can absolutely see the Christian monk showing here. That agenda is hard. Other times, the theme has to do with resisting lust, which Lancelot does not effectively do ever. There's one knight, Gareth, who continues to reattach a knight's head to his body so he doesn't have to keep his vow he made to a very attractive lady to sleep with her after he kills this one guy. Gawain is perhaps the most frequent beheading game target. Those beheading games trolls, they just love him for some reason. Because he's so little. He's like one of those little baby face knights. I feel like it is beheading games trolling because the beheading game, the supernatural being is frequently revealed to be like some trickster or somebody just trying to be an ass and troll these people. Yeah, and it's always like the young guy is like, I've got something to prove. I only have two wisps on my beard, but I can do it. I'm 11. (laughs) I'm 11, right? (laughs) Anyway, there are a number of versions of the tale with Gawain involved, and sometimes the story is cleverly subverted. In one, Gawain steals the knight's head after the first blow, preventing it from rejoining the body and skipping out on the return blow altogether. I mean, that's kind of smart. It's not honorable, Jenny. Honor was at stake. Don't steal the head. Go to your beheading like a man. Listen, we all know that we're all going to wind up with our heads in the niche of somebody else's home eventually. Probably. Watching somebody else do it for all eternity. That seems a bit unfortunate, but probably. (laughs) So what do we make of all of this? Severed heads in the mythology are imbued with a kind of spiritual magic. 
They continue to talk after they're cut off, sometimes to humorous effect, and the talking heads appear to have to do with a test of metal and courage and coming of age, which kind of lines up with how they were treated in battle. Sometimes. Other times it's all a big joke. Which makes you wonder how seriously the ancients or the people who wrote things down after the fact took all of this. But maybe it's just that they all had a sense of humor about it. I don't know. What do you think, Jen? I mean, I think it really varies. I think there's a sense of humor. There's a sense of otherness. There's a sense of maybe not understanding that culture. But ultimately, I think it's really fascinating the work you've done to triangulate everything and give us some insight into what the Celtic cult of the Severed Head might have looked like and any evidence for it. Well done, my dear. Cucullin, what do you think? I think I'll let you die a natural death and then put your head in my collection. Um, thank you? I'd like you to tell me stories forever. Oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> he turned it around. He wasn't going to kill you. He's just like, you know, when you come to this side, you can be in the wall of honor of heads to tell him stories. He'll just come and collect my head when I croak. <laughs> I'll leave it to him in my will. I mean, listen, that's what I'm going to do with just the head. <laughs> no, I don't no, even know. No. Oh, my God. I would like to marry you in the next life. That's all. Wait, pause. Are you proposing marriage because of this episode? Maybe. It's a yes or a no, buddy. It's a yes if you'll say yes. <laughs> Does that mean I did well? Yes. Oh, <laughs> I'm blushing. But are you going to say yes to him is the question. Maybe in the next life. In this one, I'm a free cat. But in the next life, you say yes. Can we be polyamorous? Oh, uh, that's the only way I am. All right, then yes, let's do it. I'm ethically polyamorous now. All my partners know this. Not like in life. Me too. Free cat. Free cat. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> All right, and on that note, we now have an engagement in the next life between Jenny and Colin, the polyamorous free cats. I am dying of the heat in my closet. It is time to wrap up the cult of the severed head. Anyway, so that's it for this week. <laughs> Join us next week. I'm not going to get ghost pregnant by Germanicus. It's fine. You'll have to have a ghost abortion. <laughs> I think that's called an exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? I don't know. I'm so hot in this closet. I might be freaking out. Jen's hallucinating from heat stroke. Join us next week for whatever goes on next in this cursed podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We're on Insta, TikTok, Facebook, and Threads at Ancient History Fangirl, and Twitter, which is not X, it's Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan. X is stupid, just like the person who bought it. <laughs> yeah, if you really want to interact with us, go to Insta. That's where we're most active, Instagram. Um, we're also on Patreon. For just $3 a month, you can get extra episodes, videos, all kinds of cool stuff, and it is what keeps our podcast going. You can find that at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. And because I'm shameless, I'm just going to tell you all that the only reason we're able to run the podcast is because of our patrons. If you want the podcast to have any longevity and to keep running, we need more patrons. Yeah, we have patrons to thank. Actually, just one patron. Apologies if I mispronounce your name. Thank you so much to Eli Vierkant. Thank you so much, and we will see you all next week. 